Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through a team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes, from teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments. UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at everythingittakes.org. You're listening to Petri Dish. It was really a delightful, sunny, picture-perfect spring Tuesday in Texas. School kids across the state were preparing for summer break, feeling that giddy rush, I'm sure many of us remember, that comes to kids in those last loose days of the school year when unstructured hours of summer fun spool out before them. Good afternoon. I'm Anne-Marie Espinoza, Executive Director of Communications and Marketing for Uvalde CISD. When came a dispatch from a small city in South Texas. Please understand at this time, we will be making a statement and not taking any questions. That would devastate and disorient the entire country again. Here to provide a statement is our Uvalde CISD Chief of Police, Pete Arrondo. Good afternoon. At approximately 11.32 a.m. this morning, there was a mass casualty incident at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, this school uh, has children that are in second, third, and fourth grade. Uh, I can confirm right now that we have several injuries, uh, adults and students, and we do have some deaths. The now-disgraced and former Uvalde CISD Police Chief Arendando, who was fired after scrutiny of the law enforcement response to the shooting, revealed a delayed and disorganized response for which he bears the blame, would later explain that 19 children and two adults, fourth graders and teachers, were targeted, trapped in their classrooms, and massacred by a young man who had walked those very halls as a fourth grader himself. The suspect is deceased at this point. Uh, DPS is assisting with the investigation. Um, and at this point, the investigation is leading uh, to tell us that the, the suspect uh, did act alone uh, during this heinous crime. Salvador Ramos, 18 years old, acted alone. A former Uvalde student who started school with this year's graduating class, but who was involuntarily withdrawn from the district in 2021 for poor grades and attendance, despite being 17 at the time, he'd only completed ninth grade. But why? Why did he do this? Evil swept across Uvalde yesterday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott the day after the massacre. Before coming out here, we had a long discussion with law enforcement at all levels. We had a discussion with community leaders, elected officials. And I asked the sheriff and others an open-ended question and got the same answer from the sheriff as well as from the mayor of Uvalde. The question was, what is the problem here? And they were straightforward and emphatic. They said, we have a mental, we, we have a problem with mental health illness in this community. 
And then they elaborated on the magnitude of the mental health challenges that they are facing in the community and the need for more mental health support in this region. This is a polarizing statement for many reasons. In the nearly two months between May 14th and July 4th of this year, three young men took high-capacity, magazine-fed, semi-automatic, high-velocity firearms, assault rifles, and shot them into crowds of innocent people, killing a combined total of 38 of them. So, <laughs> it's guns, right? That's certainly part of it. And these men weren't driven by mental illness in the way we typically think of it, right? They weren't experiencing the types of hallucinations or delusions one might associate with, say, schizophrenia. They weren't driven by depression. They weren't having an anxiety attack. They weren't in the grip of a manic episode that one might associate with bipolar disorder. They may have had some of these diagnoses, but they were not the reason they committed these crimes. In fact, people with those types of mental health challenges are far more likely to be victims of violent crime than to commit one. So mental illness, at least in this way, is not really part of the equation. So what role does mental health play in these shootings? And does the lack of access to mental health care across the country make future mass shootings more likely? Well, we asked a lot of experts, and we'd like to share with you what we've learned. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Okay, the House Committee on the Robb Elementary Shooting will now come to order. Clerk, call the roll. Representative Burroughs? Here. Representative Moody? Present. Justice Guzman? Here. Quorum is present. Okay, a quorum is present first. In the difficult weeks after the massacre in Uvalde, the Texas legislature charged three people with sorting through what we knew and finding out what we didn't know related to the shooting. On Sunday, July 17th, the committee gathered in Uvalde, a city of 15,000 people about 80 miles from the Texas border with Mexico, to share their conclusions. What I would like to do today is start with this. If there's only one thing that I can tell you is there were multiple systemic failures. Representative Dustin Burroughs was the chair of the investigative committee on the Robb Elementary shooting. I would invite everybody to read the entire report. You cannot cherry pick one sentence and use it to say everything without reading it all together and with context. But if we need a simple phrase to describe what the report says, again, I would tell you multiple systemic failures. The report is a hefty bit of reading, nearly 80 pages, considering everything from which doors at Robb Elementary were locked to details of the law enforcement response. I think some of the same systems that we found here that failed that day are across the entire state and country. And I do not want to say because of one thing or one person here, it could not happen elsewhere. I think that's a disservice and not the respectful thing to do. Packed into the center of the report are 10 pages examining the life of the shooter, his childhood, his family, his schooling, and his ultimate deterioration into a man who fit nowhere and whose rage at everything permeated his every action. 
He fits the profile of many. He came from a broken home with little to no interaction with his father. He struggled in school, both academically and socially. He struggled to fit in and eventually became isolated. He networked through his peers, with his peers through social media and violent video games, and ultimately had a fixation on school shootings and even developed the nickname School Shooter. That's Burroughs' brief summation of a staggering series of missed opportunities for intervention that the report suggests began for Ramos in fourth grade, in the classroom in which he killed and died. Burroughs said Ramos fit the profile of many, and if that's true, we should be able to find a pattern. We can do something with a pattern. We can perhaps intervene before a troubled child becomes a deadly teenager or adult. So we spoke with someone who's been collecting data on this subject for years. David Reedman is the founder of and a researcher for the K-12 school shooting database. This database started in 2018 after the shooting in Parkland, Florida. I was in a program at the Naval Postgraduate School. It was a think tank program intended to uh, create solutions for emerging homeland security issues. And when the Parkland shooting occurred, it was evident that there were a lot of warning signs that were missed. And they were missed because people didn't have the tools to recognize them and know which actions to take. The K-12 school shooting database tracks everything from what time active shootings most commonly begin to where they most commonly happen. Reedman also works with the Violence Project, which explores the shooters, their backgrounds, their guns, and their motivations. And... Uvalde follows a pattern that, unfortunately, is very similar to other school shootings and mass shootings in general. Pattern goes like this. Somebody has a standard life course where you go through an expected evolution of events And as you move from one step to the next, you're raised in early childhood by a nurturing family. From there, you go to school. At school, you learn and make friends. Eventually, from school, you graduate. You move from uh, graduation to going to college or having a job. There's a very linear evolution. And when things break down, it creates unresolved conflicts. And then people go down a path of deviance. And in people who pick up guns with the intent of murdering a lot of people they don't even know, What we see looking at the life histories of these mass shooters, and especially in Uvalde, their life course goes wrong from the very start. So the Uvalde shooter had unresolved childhood trauma. There are reports that the mother was um, abusive, that the mother was um, abusing illegal substances, and that she had a boyfriend who had sexually abused uh, the shooter at a very young age. He had told his mother about that, and she didn't believe him. The state's report bears all of this out, and Reedman says for some people, unresolved trauma like this can lead to a crisis. And at that crisis point, a person with Ramos's background might start blaming others. And it appears that the blame he was directing was at his fourth grade class, in his fourth grade classroom, the area where that shooting occurred, um, because there are now reports that he was experiencing bullying then, Um, that that's when his speech impediment started to develop, that's when his learning disabilities became evident, and that's the point where he started to fall behind and started to be isolated from his peers. 
The state report says Ramos's fourth grade year at Robb Elementary School was indeed significant to him. It says he discussed bad memories of fourth grade with an acquaintance just weeks before the shooting. So once the person is blaming something, and in, case, in this case, it was that fourth grade classroom, then they fixate on that. And they fixate on, I have to do something about this. I'm going to commit an attack there. And they begin kind of planning towards this attack. And they think the only way to resolve all of these problems and all these issues that have derailed their life course is this public attack. Okay, so um, I want to be crystal clear here. The shooter's challenges were not the fault of his fourth grade teachers or his classmates or anyone at the school. And they were certainly not the fault of those children and those teachers he so mercilessly murdered. But Understanding how he came to have this violent fixation is essential to stopping the next massacre and the next one, Reedman says. And unfortunately, it's that same pattern, trauma, crisis, blame, fixation, eventually leading to violence because nobody intervenes that plays out over and over. So how and when do we intervene? According to the state's investigation, Ramos's pre-K teachers found him to be, quote, a pleasure to have, a wonderful student, always ready to learn, who was characterized by his hard work and positive attitude in the classroom. But by third grade, the school had already identified him as at risk due to consistently poor test results and in fourth grade. The state's report details his experience with bullying over his stutter, his clothes, his haircut. His fourth-grade teacher testified she thought she'd handled the situation effectively and that he'd made friends. His family says he didn't. Regardless, there is no record of Ramos receiving academic or any other kind of services ever, even though he was clearly in need of educational and emotional support by fourth grade. Ramos had started sliding off the expected life course, Reedman describes, and was careening toward a terrible conclusion. By 2018, Ramos was piling up more than 100 absences a year. The state is required to intervene when a child has missed that much school, but the report says it's unclear whether any school resource officers ever visited his home. So... How did Ramos fall through the cracks so spectacularly? Dr. Barbara Robles-Ramamurthy is an adult, child, and forensic psychiatrist at UT Health San Antonio, and she says it happens way too often. 50% of mental illness begins by age 14. Only about 50% of kids who need mental health treatment are getting it. And this number likely is worse in rural communities with more limited resources. We also know that even when kids do access mental health treatment, it doesn't come from specialized providers who have trained to to treat children and families mental health. And even if they come to us as specialized providers, we know that most of them are only going to stick around for one or two or three visits. And so they're not going to, quote unquote, complete a dose of treatment as we would want them to. Robles Ramamurthy has not worked on this case, but she works with kids in the juvenile justice system, and she grew up in South Texas, in a town not unlike Uvalde. 
She says kids who end up in the justice system or end up hurting themselves or others don't just wake up one day and decide to be violent, and they weren't born evil either. Every child she works with has a history of adverse childhood experiences. So when we talk about adverse childhood experiences, we're talking about physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, neglect. It can be physical or emotional neglect. It can be having a parent with a severe mental illness that cannot uh, provide that parenting and support that a child needs. It can be um, parents having substance use issues. It can be experiencing intimate partner violence or family violence and other forms of community violence. When I talk to people about Ramos's life course, many respond that a lot of kids are bullied. A lot of kids have adverse childhood experiences. They don't all go buy an assault rifle and then go kill a bunch of children. You're absolutely right that most kids are not going to pick up a gun and go and shoot multiple people at a school or another public place. But a lot of kids are picking up guns, unfortunately. And a lot of adults are picking up guns. And we may not be hearing about those extensively in the media because they're not quote-unquote mass shootings. But gun violence is a public health concern in our country that cannot be ignored. And gun-related injuries became the leading cause of death for children over the past few years, right? And so whether we want to or not, this is now everybody's problem. And it has to be on everybody's mind. Kids who are in these situations often have nowhere to turn. The mental health system is extremely, in the healthcare system, can be really hard to navigate as a whole. And let alone if you live in communities that don't have the resources or you yourself don't have insurance or other resources. So, Robles Rememberthy says, the mental health field is trying to expand its reach to increase the mental health competence of people who are in frequent contact with children. And so the primary care doctors, the pediatricians, even teachers, there's a lot of ongoing initiatives trying to promote mental health awareness and education at every setting so that it doesn't matter where who's looking at that child. Somebody can say, when you're ready, here are some resources to access for mental health care. This is especially important in rural areas like Uvalde, where mental health professionals have been few and far between. According to the Department of Health and Human Services rankings for 2022, Uvalde had one mental health care provider for every 1,780 people. By contrast, the best-performing counties in the United States have one provider for every 250 people. Rural areas across the country have numbers similar to Uvalde's 2022 numbers. They're what's known as mental health care deserts. And troubled kids may have to suffer for months or a year or longer before getting in to see a mental health professional. Now, Uvalde's numbers will certainly improve in next year's HHS survey because resources have flooded the city and county since May 24th. But what about everywhere else? So, I mean, it's something that needs to be addressed in rural rural communities, not just in Texas, but in other states, too, have been left behind. We don't have the services that we need. 
That's Uvalde's mayor, Don McLaughlin. And when Petri Dish continues, we'll hear from him and talk more about the challenges of accessing mental health care in rural areas like Uvalde, from distance to stigma, and consider what to do about them. Support for the Petri Dish podcast comes from Dr. Lisa Ochoa and the SAVE Clinic, providing comprehensive vascular care with a team of three surgeons at seven locations. Office vascular circulation screenings and amputation prevention services at thesaveclinic.com. Welcome back to Petri Dish. Mayor? Mayor? In August of this year, I caught up with Uvalde Mayor, mayor. McLaughlin at Hi. City Hall. The mayor has been a lightning rod for controversy. He's a pure conservative partisan who's appeared on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox and tried to shout down former El Paso congressman and current candidate for Texas governor Beto O'Rourke when he interrupted Governor Greg Abbott's news conference the day after the massacre. Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. I'm sir, you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a bitch that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. But on this sweltering midsummer day, he was preparing to announce plans for the construction of a community center for kids that would give them a place to go and participate in all kinds of activities. He believes that's a key component to improving their mental health. While I had him, I asked him about what the governor said at that news conference that O'Rourke interrupted about Uvalde's mental health needs. One more question. The governor said after the shooting that uh, officials in Uvalde said this occurred because there were unmet mental health needs. Still is. Still is. Tell me about that. Mental health has been a problem everywhere. Mental health is not 100% of the problem, but it's a problem. And it's a problem up until before this shooting. Now we have plenty of counselors in our community right now with the tragedy that's gone on. But before that, we had two mental health people to cover five counties. So rural Texas is kind of left out. So these people get missed. They get they don't have the services they need. They don't have help they need. Right now, if we have somebody that we have to take to a bed, we may have to go as far as Texarkana, Texas to find a bed available. Uh, you know, that's a 13-hour drive from Uvalde. So, I mean, it's something that needs to be addressed in rural, rural communities, not just in Texas, but in other states, too, have been left behind. We don't have the services that we need. So hopefully with, with you know, this tragedy, and it is truly a tragedy, we brought, we'll bring awareness both to the gun side of it and to the mental health side of it. And Texas needs awareness. It ranks dead last in the United States when it comes to access to mental health care. It's also last in the number of people insured. But even if you are insured, 14% of Texas children with health insurance have no coverage for treatment of mental or emotional problems. That puts Texas in 48th place in national rankings, and it's 50th when it comes to the ratio of mental health providers to people with one mental health care provider for every 830 people. These figures all come from Mental Health America, but the numbers are even more grim when you go out into the country. 75% of rural counties across the United States have no mental health providers. 
And Texas has the highest number of counties, period, with no mental health care providers. That's according to an ABC News analysis of Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services data. They're what's come to be known as mental health care deserts. Because of that, in a lot of cases, people in rural settings are more dependent on their schools for identifying mental health needs and then providing services in schools. Uh, and that, we know that creates challenges for schools because a lot of educators aren't prepared um, uh, to provide that type of support. That's Keith Herman, a professor at the University of Missouri and co-director of the Rural School Mental Health Center. The idea of improving the mental health competency of the people who see kids every day is what Dr. Robles Remamurthy was talking about earlier in the show. But it's difficult because teachers are already overworked and overwhelmed, especially as we deal with the ongoing impact of the pandemic. So, I mean, we know that our teachers in rural and urban settings are stressed, um, and a lot of that stress has to do with workload and expectations, just providing ed- typical education services. Um, and so you're um, addressing what's a, you know, a feasibility or re- realistic um, concern about what schools can actually do. Which is why, Herman says, he stresses the importance of preventative work with kids in, say, fourth grade. So providing, you know, safe, effective environments at school where uh, all kids get access to more positive interactions with adults than negative interactions or reprimands, um, that kids um, are supported in the classroom in the same type of setting where they're Uh, likely to experience success academically and socially. And so educators can be trained to provide those types of environments that we know are good for kids collectively. Herman is also talking about training teachers to look for certain things in elementary school kids that may be indications that a child is starting to, you know, slide off that healthy path and may need some support. We know that um, some Serious mental health concerns that are common in youth or growing common are like anxiety disorders or depressive disorders. So what we want to do is before someone experiences a disorder, you know, a a disorder implies that someone has a high level of dysfunction socially, academically, uh, and impairment. Before people reach that stage, there are warning signs. And those warning signs are readily identifiable um, again, by by behaviors that teachers and educators can see, um, and also especially internalizing types of problems. You know, an, an early warning sign is struggling at school for almost all of them, like having academic struggles. Um, that can set kids up on a trajectory not only for academic failure, but for uh, enduring behavior problems, enduring um, emotion problems and regulation problems. So if a teacher notices a child is starting to struggle, then what? And so in rural settings, that's, that is one of the challenges, is if you're going to do screening, you need a plan for when kids emerge in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Are you going to be able to service them in your own building? Or what are your, what's your network of support that you're going to provide by perhaps um, contracting with you know, um, a- agencies outside your region who might be able to f- provide telehealth services or other types of support? There are other barriers to mental health care that really exist everywhere but are more keenly felt in rural areas. Lack of insurance, lower income than in urban areas, lack of trust in the healthcare industry, and stigma. 
Herman told me a story about these really neat mental health access centers they have in his area of Missouri. They're a one-stop shop, essentially, for all your mental health care needs. One is in an urban area. Rural clients have to drive there, so they decided to build some satellite offices closer to where the rural folks lived. What we found is that the rural families in the rural settings didn't access the satellite offices. They preferred to come into um, the, the city. And when we asked them, it was because it's more anonymous in the city. It's more visible to, to walk into a door that's a, you know, a mental health service provider. I'm from a rural area, and I can just imagine the scenario, right? A neighbor drives by the mental health office and sees my car because we all know each other's cars. And look, Bonnie's getting mental health services. And before I get home, everybody I know knows. And so I do think there's different, even though stigma can be fairly universal experience, that there's unique aspects of stigma that someone in a rural setting might have because of people getting in their business. Because it, it still is that sort of like um, the potential for discovery of something that I should feel ashamed about in a stigmatized framework, right? Rather than um, being more open to um, the, viewing it as a resource, it, it becomes more of a, as a burden if you're approaching it from that lens. And in places like Uvalde specifically, which is more than 80% Latino, there may be cultural reasons for the sense of stigma, according to Dr. Robles Ramamurthy. Absolutely. Latinos do have some cultural barriers that um, impact the way that we access care or stay in treatment. But I, I want to preempt that by saying that our nation <laughs> has a problem with stigma, right? I mean, most people are not interested in talking about mental health, let alone children's mental health. But she says in many Latino households, there is shame in what she calls putting your family's problems out there. In Spanish, we say los problemas de la casa se quedan en casa. Los pro problemas de la familia se quedan en casa. The family's problems stay at home. And then there's that sense of guilt that all parents get, including me, <laughs> when they feel like they're failing their child. The idea that as families, as parents, we should be able to deal with our children's behavior. But even if a person from a Latino household was to overcome their shame, their guilt, the stigma. Another issue. Um, another layer to consider for Latinos is um, racism and experiences of discrimination in healthcare. And so there is some re research showing that, you know, about 20% of Latinos experience, report experiencing discrimination in healthcare appointments in clinical settings. And this can then result in some of them not wanting to return to clinical settings for care. And we know this is true also for mental health care. And what about boys? I mean, we can't ignore when we're talking about active mass shooter situations that we're talking about mostly young men. We are still understanding what is helpful and beneficial when it comes to supporting boys and men's mental health. We know that the stigma is severe for boys and men to access and, and receive mental health care. Robles Ramamurthy says historic systems of oppression have cornered boys and men, too, in ways that aren't good for them. 
we cannot isolate boys and men's mental health from other systems of oppression, right? In terms of sexism and misogyny and patriarchy, all of these social systems that are in place, how that places a significant burden on men to act a certain way, to behave in certain ways. How can we change these narratives that have perhaps created some harm in our homes and in communities that will benefit men? to reduce that burden that they feel, to, to be the strong ones, to be the ones who, who do it all, who support the structures, the family, the social structures in place, um, the ones that you know should not be struggling. We don't want them to feel that way. Vulnerability plays a role in their ability to say, I need help, this is not working. And, and we need to really promote a way to support boys in in problem solving, in expanding their worldviews, in not feeling restricted to the boxes that we have created for them. We have to expand their ability to see their options in the world as more than just what they have been told is possible. When Petri Dish continues. If you're scared, you can't learn, you know, when you're in an unsafe environment. It's going to be hard to interact with other children when you're constantly looking around, making sure that nothing happens. Traumatized Rob Elementary students, teachers, and terrified parents prepare for a new school year. And they'll test several new approaches to mental health care for kids. Can these programs improve access for everyone? That's next. TPR is part of the Mental Health Parity Collaborative, a group of newsrooms that are covering challenges and solutions to accessing mental health care in the U.S. The partners on this project include the Carter Center, the Center for Public Integrity, and newsrooms in Arizona, California, Georgia, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Texas. Welcome back to Petri Dish. Nicole Ogburn is a fourth grade teacher, and on May 24th, 2022, she was a fourth grade teacher at Robb Elementary School who saved her students and herself by escaping through their classroom window. So we had an open a window with bullet holes and glass everywhere to get out. And when we opened it, there were just, I don't know how many officers outside pulling us out the window. We put a chair, we jumped, we were just filing kids out the window as fast as we could. She spoke with Juana Summers with NPR's All Things Considered just before the school year started. She was preparing her new fourth grade classroom in a new building called Uvalde Elementary and thinking with trepidation about the year ahead. Am I going to still be able to keep my composure when those kids come in and have they have an anxiety attack over being here at school and feeling scared. Um, am I going to be able to handle that? And I hope I am, but I'm not sure. And despite the flood of resources that have come to Uvalde since the awful day in May, Uvalde is probably the best resource town in Texas right now when it comes to mental health. She's not the only one fighting not to be hobbled by fear. 
mental health is on everybody's mind there. In the tense days before school started, my tireless colleague, TPR's Camille Phillips, talked with Uvalde families about that. It's been a little more than three months since the shooting. Time has both stood still and moved along. Hello. How are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. At the Martinez home, it's just before dinner. Adam and Raquel have four kids and another on the way. Raquel is making lasagna. Do you make yeah. lasagna a lot? No. This is your first time, right? This is my first time making it. What but made you decide to try lasagna tonight? Their oldest two kids have finished high school, but their daughter, Analia, is starting seventh grade, and their son, Zayon, is in third. Zayon was at Robb Elementary during the shooting. They uh, went on lockdown, and he was under his desk for quite a while, waiting, and he was crying, and kids were crying, and, and apparently they heard some shots that sounded like fireworks. Adam Martinez says for the first few weeks afterwards, his eight-year-old son was somber and didn't play much. To help him cope, the Martinez's got him a guinea pig. What's that? It's a guinea pig. A guinea pig? What's its name? Max. Max? (laughs) And now he's gotten back to normal pretty much where he's just joking around, being active. But there are some things that trigger him, like, loud noises. Um, He wants the door locked all the time, and before, he never really worried about the doors being locked. Martinez says Zayon also has nightmares and trouble sleeping. And he's not alone. Many kids and parents are still scared. The Uvalde School District is putting up eight-foot fences around the schools, and 33 state troopers will be stationed at the schools this year. Those measures made Adam Martinez feel better about sending his kids back. But Analia and Zayon told their parents they're scared because they don't trust the police to protect them. They're worried that if it happens again, it's going to be the same scenario where they don't go in there, they don't protect them. So it doesn't matter how high the fencing is or how many police officers are there, they don't feel comfortable right now. The Uvalde school board fired the school police chief who was in command during the shooting, but the district's other officers are still on the job. And it's likely some of the state troopers assigned to guard Uvalde schools this year were also on the scene in May. I wish I could tell them, well, those cops are gone, son. They won't be back, you know, but I can't. They're the same cops. Those same cops are going to be there. So Adam and Raquel decided to enroll their kids in the district's new virtual option instead. If you're scared, you can't learn. You know, when you're in an unsafe environment, it's going to be hard to interact with other children when you're constantly looking around, making sure that nothing happens. The Martinez's plan to reassess whether to return for in-person classes after the first semester. A lot of the Uvalde School District's security upgrades aren't done. Fences are only up around two of the eight campuses, for instance. And the district's own investigation into its officers' actions that day hasn't even begun. So then wait, I'll meet you at the mayoral's when I'm done with her right here. 
This past Friday, Angeli Gomez was with a group of mothers who call themselves Fierce Madres. They got together after the shooting to become politically active. On this day, they're going house to house, stumping for a state legislative candidate who wants stricter gun laws. Gomez is known for something else, too. She was the woman who fought her way past the police line at Rob to save her two sons during the shootings. We set up lawn chairs outside her grandma's house to talk. Gomez says she was originally planning to keep her kids home from school, but towards the end of the summer, her son said they wanted to return. I mean, I can't hold them back because they just want to go catch up with friends and really do sports again. She's going to let them go back, but it's not been an easy decision. Like, just thinking about it, I feel like on that day I'm going to cry because it feels like kindergarten, but, like, it feels like I'm letting them go and something they could not come home tomorrow, and it would be my fault for letting them go back. Gomez is a single mom and works long hours in the field harvesting onions and cucumbers and chiles. She says it would have been really hard to figure out childcare if she signed her sons up for virtual instruction. And a lot of parents are just like her. I can't stay home. I'm like, I'm one of those. I can't stay home. Like, I have to work. So and then who's going to watch our kids? The first day of school brings back all the fear she experienced on May 24th. Earlier that day, it was a celebration. The school held an award ceremony to honor students. Families were there taking pictures of smiling kids. Gomez knows those pictures could have been the last ones she ever took of her children. And not even 30 minutes later, you're getting a call that they're shooting up the school. It's just, I don't know, it was just crazy. It was just bad. Yeah. And it's just so hard to think about school again now and not thinking about what happened. Teachers and staff have been trained how to respond to children experiencing grief and trauma. But it just may be the parents who have the hardest time letting go especially those who should have had one more child going back to school, but don't. For NPR News, I'm Camille Phillips in Uvalde, Texas. Parents in Uvalde who send their kids back into school buildings right now are taking a great leap of faith. Teachers who go back, they are too. Like Nicole Ogburn, the teacher we met a few minutes ago. Okay, so this is kind of just like a, like this social-emotional learning. Like, every day you kind of want to know what, what your, how your kids are feeling, because sometimes that can gear how your lessons are going to go or how that child may just need to be by themselves that day and not, you know, don't need all this people right around them. Ogburn is showing NPR's Wanda Summers her classroom, which now includes a piece of black poster board with bright confetti-like polka dots around the border and plastic pockets for little gingerbread people one for each student. So this is just, it's called, how, it's how do you feel? And so you have ready to learn, happy, calm, tired, confused, sad, nervous, and angry. So then there's these little people. And then for that day, they'll just say, okay, so I'm happy today. So they'll put theirs in the happy. 
Or if a kid is angry, they can put it in the angry or nervous section. She has created a way to check in with her fourth graders about how they're feeling. So that myself and my co-teacher, Ms. Alvarado, we kind of know, like, okay, this is how they're feeling today. So we may need to be a little more cautious of how we approach them. So this is just kind of our way of seeing how they're feeling for that day. So maybe if we just need to take that moment, we can't <laughs> with them. Social emotional learning helps kids identify what they're feeling and teaches them the language that will help them express themselves in healthy ways throughout their lives, their needs, their worries, their hopes, their fears. I know the first few weeks, I'm sure they're all going to be pretty scared and anxious. But then throughout the year, there's going to be other emotions, I'm sure, that play into just everyday family life things happening. So we wanted to really, like, how are you feeling today? And start with that. It's that kind of screening, like Professor Herman talked about earlier in the show, that lets teachers take their students' emotional temperatures. And it's something Josh Knutson has tried to replicate with the Rhythm app, which is a software tool that will also be available to students in Uvalde this year. Rhythm is a it's a wellness check-in tool. So I'm going to, as a student, I'll, I'll come in, I'll uh, check in, you know, uh, it's across several categories, mental, energy, emotional, physical, social. It's all emoji-based. It takes 30 seconds to a minute to complete it. Um, and then as soon as students finish that, the system also will say, hey, well, what's going on with this student and what do they need right now? And we actually launch right there in the moment, individualized, adapted, um, you know, uh, pieces of, of content all under two minutes um, that actually you know, help students develop some of those soft skills and get more ready to engage in class. So if a child is stressed, they might get a video that sounds like this. Let's take a few breaths. Nice. Because in order to really sit down and learn, you know, the thinking parts of my brain need to be turned on. And the way the brain works, the way the body works, the way the nervous system works is that if I'm not regulated, if I'm angry, if I'm uh, anxious, if I'm hungry, if I'm just excited, you know, um, these, uh, the activation of my brain shifts to different parts of the brain, to the, um, the emotion centers, and it reduces activation in the thinking and learning centers. And so in, in an education context, if you think about learning, um, emotion regulation becomes fundamentally important for a student to be able to sit down and take in information and retain it. Rhythm also shares check-in information with teachers so they can track who's, say, feeling sad a lot and who may be feeling angry a lot. And being able to identify um, students, human people that, that are experiencing challenges earlier up the, the, the chain, um, I think can be a, a major preventative mechanism. But what do you do when you've identified a child who might need a little more help, particularly in areas where mental health resources are limited, in those mental health care deserts? In Texas, your school district might have a program called TeachAt, Texas Child Health Access through telemedicine. 
Our job, we are mental health providers um, providing a healthcare service. So whenever a young person is identified who has needs that are beyond what a counselor could assist them with, um, um, then they could, um, with the parent's permission, make a referral for our healthcare team to um, talk to the parent, get a, a, a consent, and then provide an assessment um, for the for the family. Laurel Williams is a professor of child and adolescent psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and part of the Texas Child Mental Health Care Consortium. She is overseeing the implementation of T-Chat across the state. It's telemedicine, like a Zoom meeting with your doctor, so distance doesn't matter. Uvalde is an hour and a half from San Antonio, three hours round trip. A lot of families just can't make that work. And so what what TeachHat allows us to do is allows us to go into the schools and so that families don't have to have their young person leave for lengthy periods of time to go to a healthcare visit. They can step out of a class, walk down the hall, have their private secure healthcare visit through telehealth, and then go back to class. What does that look like in practice? KUT's Seema Mather in Central Texas walks us through it. Dell Medical School provides the therapist to Austin-area schools. Dr. Nithya Mani is a pediatric psychiatrist and the associate director of T-Chat at Dell Med. I cannot stress enough how much this has impacted access to care. I see kids on a daily basis who would never be able to find their way to a child psychiatrist. And that, to me, is, is really huge. DelMed is one of 12 Texas higher ed health institutions that's providing therapists to public schools through T-Chat. DelMed's Dr. Mani says clinicians do have to work a little differently to engage with kids online. I have some clinicians who will do like icebreakers where they'll play a game online together. Once they move into the, the therapeutic work, handouts that they can look at together, um, a lot of fillable forms. So the student themselves can actually be typing into the form as they're talking through kind of what coping skills they're going to use or what's going to go into their safety plan. Dr. Mani says through the program, she's already been able to find kids who were misdiagnosed with ADHD. And on the flip side, psychiatrists have been able to immediately prescribe medication to those who need it. It's really such an honor to be in that vulnerable place with families and really help them to understand how they can get better. What I really love about it is I get to maintain hope when they feel like they don't have hope. Once a counselor gets a yes, a child can be seen within two weeks. If it's urgent, the same day. Students generally get five to six telehealth visits. After that, if needed, parents are connected directly to providers. Reporting from Central Texas by Seema Mather. Now, T-Chat has been around since 2019, developed in response to the 2018 school shooting at the high school in Santa Fe, Texas, in which eight students and two teachers died. After Uvalde, the governor and the legislature decided that access to T-Chat should be rapidly expanded and the tele-mental health program should be made available in every Texas school district that wants it by next fall. Laurel Williams, again, who's overseeing the implementation of T-Chat, says some rural school districts have been a little slower to get on board, despite the obvious benefits. So, obviously, um, Texas is big enough to have, like, 
what, like a thousand cultures and, and ways of being, right? There's no one Texas, right? We're, we're, a, we're, we're definitely a composite state. Um, when I talk to my teams that are in more of our more rural areas of Texas, there is a sense that um, there's they, the rural um, school districts and providers want to get to know you first. Like there's not like, oh, I'm going to phone call and I'm going to Zoom and then they're going to buy into the program and and they're going to they're going to join. So it's actually a lot of um, equity of of going out to places, visiting, having an actual handshake, um, look you in the eye kind of process. We approach things very differently. We're not here to tell you what to do at the school. We're here to be a support. And I think sometimes they're a little bit um, hesitant to believe us. Like, are you really, you know, because I think the idea is, oh, you're going to come in and then you're going to tell us what to do. Like, nope, we're never going to tell you what to do. We're only ever going to partner with you. And if you say you really need this campus is the one you need the most help with, then that's the campus we're going to help you with. So I think that that trust just has to build and you don't build trust overnight. The Valley School District is among those that will be using T-Chat services this school year. The district did not have T-Chat when Ramos was a student. If it had been available then, or I guess if we could go back to when Ramos was in fourth grade and, you know, give him a safe place where he could talk through his problems with a mental health professional before he plummeted through those wide mental health care cracks that children and their families too often fall through in the United States, could it have prevented the horror that was to come? There's no way to know. Of course, Williams doesn't know. But I do think that we can help prevent people committing suicide. We can help prevent people from being uh, so depressed they drop out of school. You know, we can prevent um, people from maybe starting substance misuse and having additional problems. So I think that we have to also remember all the other things that we can help prevent by having more children have access to our services. Um, and obviously, we all hope that we can come together to prevent another school shooting. We've started to talk about school shootings like wartime battles. 17 dead at Parkland, 10 dead at Santa Fe, 26 dead at Sandy Hook, 21 dead at Uvalde. Using this language of war about schools is not okay to just acquiesce as our children are massacred, to just shrug our shoulders and wait for the next one, the one that might claim our child. What kind of culture is okay with routinely sending their children to their deaths? when there are tangible ways to stop it, or at least try. We are not powerless, and if this is a war, it's a war with our own passivity and stubbornness. There is a mental health crisis in this country. Our children are crying out for support, and we are doing very little to help them. Now, in this episode of the show, we've explored some actionable ways to improve mental health care access to children, no matter how much money their parents have or where they live. 
These programs will need funding, and we must support school board members, town and city council members, and state and federal lawmakers that are willing to fund them and to improve mental health care access in other innovative ways. Uvalde right now might be a model for how to better reach kids in rural areas, but there are thousands of other towns where kids are suffering right now with no one to help them. And there's more. We need to support families that are struggling, parents who are having troubles with their own mental health that leave them unable to be the fully present parents they want to be and that their children need. We need to stop judging the mom or dad who doesn't have it all together and instead find ways to support them, to support each other. We need to talk about the online world in which many of our children spend a significant amount of their lives. It's difficult for a lot of us. We're not digital natives like our kids, so the whole concept of virtual cultures that are just as real as the ones we live in can be confusing to us, but they are very real to our children, and they can be merciless. There's bullying and doxing and revenge porn and entire Internet cultures, usually accessed through video games, that exist solely to target our young men in terrifying ways, luring them into worlds filled with vicious misogyny, racism, anti-Semitism, white supremacy. These places stoke real-world rage and real-world violence right under our noses without our knowledge or permission. Talk to your kids about what they're experiencing online, and let's talk to each other about how to block these forces from our homes. We need to talk about guns, too, like rational adults, and we all know it. Right now and for years, we've been acting like spoiled children while our actual children face firing squads. Still, there are many sensible people in this country with sensible ideas that seek to protect both our children and our rights. These are not all-or-nothing propositions. Let's listen to each other. And we need to fight the stigma that comes with admitting we need mental health help. Seeking help for your child is not an admission that you're a bad parent. It's evidence that you're a good one. And seeking help for yourself so you can be the parent your child needs? There is absolutely no shame in that. How do I know? I've done it. 19 children and two teachers died on May 24th, in part because we've been refusing to take any of these things seriously for far too long. Salvador Ramos was eight years old when Sandy Hook happened. If we'd acted then, would we be grieving Uvalde today? I don't know. But I do know that we can help the troubled eight-year-old who is starting to struggle today. We can do that. We're the grown-ups here. We owe it to our kids and those we've lost to try. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by TPR News Director Dan Katz, Jacob Rosati, and me. Jacob Rosati is also the person behind the original music and sound design. Special thanks to TPR education reporter Camille Phillips and KUT's Seema Mather for their reporting on this show. 
Petri Dish is a production of Texas Public Radio, which is part of the Mental Health Parity Collaborative, a group of newsrooms that are covering challenges and solutions to accessing mental health care in the U.S. The partners in this project include the Carter Center, the Center for Public Integrity, and newsrooms in Arizona, California, Georgia, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Texas. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.